You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. This week's guest is Razib Khan. Razib is a geneticist. He is a blogger at Gene Expression. He has his own podcast, Brown Pundits. And Razib has actually been on this podcast before. I will uh, put a link in the show notes to the previous episode, which was on the genetic history of India. Thank you so much for coming to join me, Razib. So the reason I invited you to come onto the podcast is that this morning I, I literally just read a fantastic article that you have published in City Journal, which is about the reasons why our society Well, you were talking about American society, but I'm sure many of these things are also true of the society here in the UK and elsewhere in the West. You were talking for in that article about why Western society was so particularly ill-prepared for the pandemic. And I, I haven't been following your coverage of the pandemic, but I feel that having read that article, I now feel that I should have been following it closely, and I will put links in the show notes for our listeners. But you were one of the first people to suggest that social distancing would be imperative. I remember you talking about that on Twitter very early on, perhaps late January or early February. It's certainly the first place that I actually, the first person who gave me the impression that that um, COVID-19 might be a threat that we should take seriously was you on, on your Twitter account. So thank you for that, Razib. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, it, the last couple of months have been um, a blur. So I don't actually even remember much of what I was saying in February and January. Um, well, I remember because I was back in Buenos Aires, and I was planning to move here to London um, at uh, in mid-April. In fact, I was I was planning to leave for London today. That was my original plan. I was going to be flying today on Good Friday, um, or actually, no, arriving this morning. This morning is the day I would have arrived in London, and I was. I think it was mid-February when I began to wonder whether it might not be a good idea to leave sooner rather than later. But I imagine there might be some restrictions on international flights and things. I wasn't at all imagining the kind of situation that actually met me when I, when I arrived. And it was a, just over a month ago, so that was um, early March, when I was Uh, sitting in my room in Buenos Aires at night. And I heard Trump announce that he was stopping all flights coming into the US from Europe. This didn't actually affect me directly at all, but it suddenly 
put the fear of God into me and made me think I might I might get stuck here in Buenos Aires and I won't be able to go back to London. I won't be able to complete my move. And so I went immediately online and I booked the first flight that I could, which was it was about midnight when I went online and I booked a flight for the day after that. So I I booked for the Saturday morning and I was online there on the Thursday, Thursday after midnight. So it was in a literal sense the next day. And that was then the penultimate flight that left Buenos Aires before they closed off all international flights and went into lockdown. Uh, so those are the those are the pretty much the only dates that I'm able to retain in my head. But I do remember that several weeks before that, I was already wondering whether I should move early, and a large part of that was because I was following you on Twitter. Okay, well, I mean, I guess that's good to know. Um... Uh, I will, you know, one thing that I did say um, on Twitter recently is I'm part of some private forums. And one thing that I realized, I mean, I think everyone knows this implicitly. When you have a small group of people that trust each other, you feel free to say crazy things without worrying that they're going to use it as an opportunity to attack you or dunk on you, or be smug. So um, I was actually quite a bit more guarded on Twitter because I didn't want to seem crazy. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting that uh, that that my alarm shone through. I mean, I was actually having a fair number of people messaging me privately, um, asking if I was if I was super worried and. I said yes, and so finally on February 28th, I just blared out that yes, I'm freaking out mm, in bold letters, mm. and yes, I that's just how that. I am and how I'm feeling. And <laughs> um, multiple scientists have actually told me that that's that's when they looked into it and freaked out. Yeah, but I remember you dropping some hints earlier on um, when I think that everybody was still imagining it was just um, confined to Wuhan. And I actually remember walking through um, on Chinese mm -hmm. New Year, walking through Chinatown in Buenos Aires and thinking, oh, some of these poor people might have relatives back in China who are affected by this, with no sense that this would actually come and affect us. And even when I, even when I decided to rebook my flight, I thought it would just be a matter of flights being cancelled and some major events. Um, I did, I had no idea how quickly the self-distancing thing would become self-isolation. I thought uh, social distancing would be just don't go to parties or to the cinema or mm -hmm. a restaurant, don't gather in big groups. And now, of course, mm -hmm. it's leave your house only once a day for, yes. um, for exercise. This is, this is lockdown. Um, well, I mean, what a lot of us are doing is basically self-quarantine. Um, and I, you know, I did announce, I think on March 5th, that my family was self-quarantining. So, um, you know, that's a different thing than just social distancing. And it's more extreme. And it should have more of a restraining impact on the spread of the virus. Um, so epidemiologically, I'm actually more optimistic than I was. Um, the, the body count in the United States looks 
um, better than the the worst case scenarios. Um, one of the things that I did start doing um, privately and pretty intensively was just like running my own calculations. Um, probably around February 10th, I started doing it. And so um, when you see the numbers that you calculate out, which you or what I do is I double check to play around with the parameters, see how robust it is. And all the results were coming out very alarming. Um, I mean, and I was using figures from China and I'm cautious, but even if I was very optimistic, the numbers were very alarming. And so when you're looking at body counts of hundreds of thousands, um, and everyone else is just going along their merry way, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, it, it was very surreal because, um, People, I, and I was asking my friends in at the end of January, you know, scientists, and they were not worried. Um, they obviously thought I had um, lost my marbles a little. Um, they could <laughs> they could tell by the look in my eye that that I was freaking out. Um, but uh, you know, of course, they all came around eventually. Um, I think earlier than the public for sure. I think scientists were definitely ahead of the game, but. Um, it's um it's an we live in interesting times. That's mm, mm. that's all I've been saying recently. Yeah. So let's begin by talking about how ill prepared we were and, and why. Um you you wrote a pretty damning in, indictment of US society uh in your article. Could you um could you just run by us? Um why why were we why were we so just blindsided by this? as a society. And I, I say we, I'm going to include the UK yeah. within the kind of yeah. US and, and uh, mm -hmm. the West, mm -hmm. um, let's say. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, Western society in particular is what I was focusing on. I know the American case and City Journal is based on New York City. So I was trying to use those examples particularly, but yes, this is generalizable. Um, the reasons that we were ill-prepared, some of them are, are quite prosaic. Um, SARS, MERS, and H1N1 didn't really have much of an impact outside of East Asia. And so I think a lot of people, including a lot of scientists, public health people, epidemiologists, if you look at what they said in late January, including Fauci and others, they were very, very sanguine because the past history had not suggested that these, um, you know, epidemics that broke out in China actually went pandemic and global. So we had that history. Um, and so that's just like a straight scientific reason. Um, you know, there's always reasons to be scared. And when you do models, you're always leaving out certain things. And it might not turn out as bad as you were thinking. Uh, in 1976, I believe the United States went through, um, uh, it was, a, I think it was a swine flu scare and it turned out nobody died, but they rolled out a vaccine and actually it caused some, some serious health side effects in people. And so um, you can get too scared. You can do too much. Like, you know, there's not, there is a line and there are trade-offs. I do want to emphasize that. But um, I think we were relying on the history um, 
of what had happened in the past. And um, also China is just out of sight, out of mind. Um, as I said in the article, it's people perceive it to be some exotic land and what happens in China stays in China. And I'll be frank, in the first um, couple of weeks, um, my wife was following Wuhan very closely. We have Chinese mainland friends and my daughter was in a Chinese immersion school. So we have connections that way. And she was following Chinese social media. And I made a lot of excuses about how they had these comorbidities and mm, mm. China was very dense and this and that. Um, I made all those excuses that I heard other people make later. But ultimately, um, China's, you know, 18% of the world's population, 15% of the world's economy. I mean, you can't ignore it. And it's not a different universe. Um, the laws of biology and physics are the same there. And so at the end of January, I just could not ignore the data and the numbers that were coming out of China because um, the progression of the disease, the epidemiological parameters, all of them looked very scary. And there were differences between this disease and the original SARS, um, SARS coronavirus 1, um, which made this much more likely to be a pandemic. So the easiest one is the original SARS is actually quite contagious and even more lethal. But um, it doesn't seem to transmit until the person is quite sick. And so it was very mm -hmm. easy to contain. Right, because if you're if you're sick, you're going to stay home because you don't feel well, or be in the hospital. Um, right, right. So you won't you won't actually be out and about. Yes, um, exactly. Transmitting exactly, and so I mean that was the science of it. Um, the science of it made some pretty straightforward predictions. Um, one thing that I said in my piece um, is I want to highlight that a lot of cultural elites are innumerate. Okay, they can't mm. do basic mathematics um which i mean you know that's no it's not a sin but when you're talking about something scientific the inability to do basic mathematics in your head and have a good intuition makes it difficult for you to understand um in any concrete way what people are telling you and so when scientists are speaking to some journalists it's like a wizard explaining how the spell works to someone who's not a wizard. The wizard mm. can tell you anything. And mm. the magic spell, it's not really credible or not credible to you. It's just kind of abstract. And so a scientist can be telling you, be worried, but you can't do any of the math or the projections in your head. And so you just have to wait. Now, the other thing, if you can't do math, you could have just looked at what happened in Wuhan. But we're not a very curious people. And um, I didn't want to overemphasize it in the piece because I don't like to overemphasize this. But let me be entirely candid. And I think that there's a high level of uh, ethnocentrism among white people in particular, let's be honest. And these are Asian ant people. Once it, once it, once it came to Italy... I think people noticed. And I don't think that was a coincidence. Mm, mm. So I, I think like some of it is just extreme parochialism. Because even if you can't do the exponential model in your head, if you don't have a feel for that, which most biologists I think should have a feel for, but 
Some of them don't. Um, you should have seen what happened in Wuhan. Everything that happened in Wuhan happened mm. in Milan and it is happening in New York. So science is based on these models, often mathematical, but not always. But it's also based on empirical evidence. We had the empirical evidence. So for me, the reason I was scared is I saw what happened in Wuhan. I know Chinese people. They're just people like me. They're just people like us. And so why would it not happen to us magically? You know, I mean, that, that's where I was at. Because I was just like, that could be us. Like there were, we, you know, there were things that were just really tragic that happened in Wuhan where, you know, they took away parents that were infected, leaving like a three-year-old child in the house alone. And so the, na- the neighbors had to feed the child through right. the door. And the child had no idea what was going on mm-hmm. because it's a three-year-old child. You know, mm. these are the things that people were sharing on Chinese social media, on Weibo, um, and uh, whatnot that we were seeing. And, you know, sometimes they had Instagram accounts. We were watching people were in quarantine and they were um, putting out these heartfelt speeches, basically, to the rest of the world about what was happening. And, you know, I guess no one was paying attention. I mean, I was paying attention, but, mm. you know, maybe it's because I have some connections through you know, Chinese language stuff. And it was just, it was heart-wrenching. And, um, you know, it was just really real to me. I, I guess I'll say it that way. It wasn't real to our elite, you know, until until it happens to them. I guess it's that's how it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, I mean, one thing you highlight in the article is um, how how much of a false sense of control we have in our societies, we feel that we can manage the economy such that people will always be prosperous. And I, I think that this has this has really brought home to me how the economy is like this very carefully balanced house of cards. Yeah. And if you remove one card, the, the, the whole thing is going to come tumbling down. My earnings are dependent on other people having the money to support me. And their earnings are dependent on other people buying what they offer, the goods or services they offer, etc., in a kind of endless chain. And you only need to break the chain for the knock-on effects to be enormous. And I feel that there there is this kind of supreme confidence. This this is where I see the right being overconfident, the left are overconfident in a in a in a different way, but. I see some people in, on the right being really overconfident about the ability of of this the self-sustaining prosperity of the system. It's just the kind of communism clearly doesn't work, but here we have free market capitalism, and that will always work perfectly and keep us or most of us prosperous. And therefore, we you know we don't need to consider universal basic income. That's a crazy scheme. Who needs that? We don't need to think about single payer healthcare. Let's reject the the candidate who is offering that. Um, we can just rest assured that 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 the capitalist system will will um, be self be self sustaining and keep us all wealthy well, and mean, secu- financially secure indefinitely. Yeah. I don't I know mean, if that was also your impression. After 2008 and the financial crisis, I, you know, I have a certain level of skepticism about what economists tell me. 
because they had no idea what was going to happen then. And that's the economy. And that's what they study. So, um, you know, I have to like, you know, be careful about that. On the mm-hmm. other hand, you know, you want to be hopeful. So yes, I was yes. hoping, um, I will say one thing, the stock market in the United States did quite well until about, until I think Monday of March 10th. And in the private forums that I was in, um, there's some people actually made a lot of money shorting. You know, they, they, they predicted the stock market would mm. go down. They took actually pretty risky positions because um, it was so high. But um, we were all talking about why isn't the stock market dropping? Why isn't the stock market dropping? Because they have all the information that we have. And, um, you know, there's a theory of like, you know, the rational market and everything is priced in. Um, but the stock market didn't drop gradually or it didn't drop rapidly in early February. It just stayed where it was, stayed where it was. Um, there were very few infections because I think all of your listeners now, and I know that a lot of your listeners overlap with mine because um, when I open iTunes for Brown Pundits, yours is one of the other, my subscribers tend to subscribe to this. So I know that a lot of the listeners have heard my voice also on my podcast. But um, in any case... You know, we know the exponential growth. So the reason there weren't that many cases in the United States is because, well, it's exponential. It takes a while to double and rise, you know. And so these quants in Wall Street knew or they didn't know or they had other incentives. Um, it's, it's all quite mysterious to me. Um, it's, not, it's not signaling the information that was actually pretty easy to find out there. So, I mean, let me reiterate. I expressed my worry in February, and in late February, I expressed it really strongly. And that's when a bunch of scientists decided to look into it because people are busy. Mm, mm, Yeah. And then they freaked out. The reason they freaked out is they know what exponential growth was. They looked at the, like, you know, I've done in my graduate work, you know, I I did some coursework in epidemiology. And so I knew what an R naught was automatically. I'd done some modeling already. So, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I've actually been pretty familiar with the the modeling framework there. And it's not that complicated. It's not that abstruse, you know? And so anybody who had the basic tools could understand what was happening. I understand there's all these complicated models from Imperial College over there in England. And there's the Oxford group and there's, you know, the IMA group at UW. Most of those models are not actually adding, frankly, that much value for the normal person. Like, like you could do some simple calculations. I did some simple calculations using op- optimistic assumptions, assuming no change in behavior, and I got 498,000 Americans are going to die, which is like within the range of some of these models, right? Because of the assumptions that they made. Um, I think we're going to be considerably below that for the first wave, or at least into the spring and the summer. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, I think we're lucky. Um, frankly, compared to what we would be. I mean, at least in the United States, I mean, England's having some difficult issues because they made a mistake listening to the wrong people initially. And it, and good for Boris that he, that he updated and changed his mind on that. But, um, you know, with exponential growth, like a week can make a huge difference. You know, days can make a huge difference. So um, this is why alarmism was happening because you know we could do the math and we saw what was going on 
you know, in terms of my city journal piece, um, I wanted to focus kind of on the internal psychology of the United States and, um, you know, how our elites are trained and what they think is important. So, um, you know, there were some Silicon Valley people who uh, were being alarmist in early February and um, they were being made fun of by the media. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a very smug way. Uh, and it's the same media now that, like, you know, is super alarmist. And so the media's lagging indicator. Um, there's some great journalists out there, but I mean, you know, to be entirely frank, the whole clickbait ecology um, really rewards sociopathic personalities who behave as if they want to be the most popular kid in the seventh grade. Yeah, instead of rebutting the arguments in a rational, analytical way, they just decide to make fun of people. Mm, mm. I wanted to ask you about herd immunity um, because the question has continued to revolve around my around my head, um, which is the the odd thing is that we are quarantining the well. Um, we're quarantining everybody. We are imposing a self-isolation on everyone. And that is, uh, that's going to have uh, devastating economic effects. And of course, the virus running unchecked would also have devastating um, economic effects and and human effects, more importantly. But I, I have been, I still find myself wondering whether there wasn't some middle route between a universal social distancing, or rather it's um, a lockdown situation as it is now, and a and just allowing people to go about their lives as normal, which is more or less the model they're still following in Sweden, I believe they're still pursuing a kind of herd immunity strategy. I I keep asking myself, couldn't they have imposed strict lockdown or uh, on vulnerable groups and people who have contact regular contact with vulnerable groups and allowed the the rest of the population to go out catch the disease and develop the the herd immunity as a kind of buffer zone uh, perhaps those of us who are at lower risk should have been permitted or encouraged to spread the disease among ourselves as long as we aren't in any in any kind of contact with higher risk people what is your feeling about why why was that strategy so quickly ruled out or i think never considered because there there never seems to have been a strategy of really carefully isolating the vulnerable from the less vulnerable what are your feelings about that yeah so you know I think part of the issue is rapid execution of something like this. I don't think we had the infrastructure. Um, so, you know, in East Asia, there are situations where they do basically quarantine camps um, of vulnerable people, high-risk people, um, to keep them away from other people. And then I think like also people that have been positively infected or positively tested because they're doing a lot of testing. Um, so... I, I think you need a lot of test kits. Um, I, you know, I don't know about, 
actually, I do know a little bit about England. I think you guys also have issues with not enough test kits. Um, yeah, we're testing only only people who are um, hospitalized and placed on a ventilator yeah. are tested, yeah. and not even all of those. And I know we don't have enough tests even for our medical um, staff. Yep. Doctors and nurses are expected to continue work even if they test positive and are symptomatic. Um, and it's only if they go into the ICU that they even stop working because we don't have enough medical staff otherwise. Uh, it's already, the system is already straining to cope. Yeah, so you need tests. We don't have tests. So you need to have like good information. We don't have good information. We're not going to get good information soon. So without that possibility, uh, it's really hard to select who gets quarantined where, um, because the way it works is you have to spatially, you have to like, you know, physically separate people, maybe put them in hotels, um, in Israel and in Korea, you know, they put them in hotels. They've done this ad hoc on the West coast of the United States, uh, positively infected people. So that's one thing. Um, and then, you know, you could do hotels, you could do a variety of things. Um, in China, they have these open air, not, not totally open air, but they're kind of camps, like circus tents, I think. Um, and that was a really good way to isolate people um, from other people. So some of it is just, you know, how are you going to do this? What are you going to execute in like two weeks? Um, I think if we really wanted to focus on it, we could have, but I don't think our society's had enough unanimity. So lockdown was just easier. Um, then the second thing, um, and this varies from country to country, uh, so I know the Swedes have said that it's actually kind of constitutionally difficult for them to impose lockdown um, by fiat, you know, law, but like, you know, by decree by the state. And so they've been actually encouraging social distancing um, and being rational and reasonable. But partly they claim, which I, I, I don't, I can't confirm, um, is their statutes are such that it doesn't give them much freedom. Here in the United States, we have a Bill of Rights. Um, there are emergency powers and you know conditions that you can do certain things, but really um, a lot of people don't want to restrict rights too much. I have a pinned tweet that we need to restrict interstate travel and other things. Um, that's actually might be unconstitutional. We might have to have legislation and test that. But I really think um, the way we beat this in the United States is we're, you know, the size of Europe and we have local hotspots like New York City. We need to restrict non-essential travel from New York City to other areas. Um, we need New York City's numbers to go down and other places are not going to be as hard affected. I mean, we know in Europe that there are places that are much worse affected than others and the same is probably going to be true in the United States. So um, we need to be rational. And this is called like the red zone, green zone idea. Um, some people at Claremont and Balaji Srinivasan here in the States have been promoting it where there are certain zones um, that you're trying to, you know, quarantine and, and kind of like get the R naught down and then other zones that are functioning normally. You kind of saw this in China where they kind of shut shut Hubei away, um, Hubei province away from the rest of the country and then Wuhan from the rest of Hubei to a great extent. And so what, what you saw was like multiple layers of quarantine and cordoning off. Um, there's just issues of both the ability to execute with our state capacity and also whether we can even legally do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in the ideal world, um, we would have testing 
And um, we would just isolate people that were tested positive and also have places where extremely vulnerable people could be, you know, um, away from the people that are carrying it. Yeah. Or, or away from anybody who might potentially be carrying it. Um, I know that you also, one other objection that is that there might be long-term sequelae from having had the virus, even if you had a relatively mild uh, case. Is that is is there any reason to to think that? Yeah, I don't think we know enough. I mean, part of it is like how you define mild and severe. Um, so when this happened, when the coronavirus came up in January, our Chinese friends immediately told us people who have SARS and who went to hospital and survived SARS, they have lifetime problems because they have tissue damage due to the fact that the receptor that the virus targets is expressed in many tissues, all of these things, right? Um, so like, you know, issues with their lungs, issues with their hearts, issues with their brains, sterility, I mean, a lot of things. Um, so the evidence out of Italy is mixed. The evidence out of China is there are problems for people in severe cases. Um, I would estimate that depending on what the case fatality rate is, like two or three times more people will be severely maimed than will die, you know? And so, yes, I, I think that one of the problems that I have listening to people about the mortality rate, the case fatality rate, is one, this is happening over, you know, three weeks, whereas the flu happens over like less than a week. Um, and then if you're recovering, you could be in there for a month and a half. So there's just some issues with how this disease progressed, which is not the same as the flu. The flu was really quick. I had H1N1. Like it was a really mm -hmm. bad flu. I was just like sleeping for three days and then I was fine. But um, this is not like that. And the second thing is once you're better from the flu, unless you have like a secondary pneumonia, I mean, you're better, right? Um, yeah. This thing, if you're one of the more, you know, severe cases, like if you had to go to the ICU, um, you could have like serious damage the rest of your life. Um, there could be various forms of brain damage. And I mean, it, it, there's a lot of things that could happen. So, um, yeah, that's, I, you have to know a lot of the details to make the comparisons. And I think people don't want to know the details. Um, they just want to, you know, there's still people who are telling me it's just the flu or it's just a cold. Mm. I, I don't really know what to say to them because I don't know of any cold where, you know, this many people die. <laughs> Right. Um, another thing that I'm hearing is that unless you are over 70, your likelihood of having a severe case is very low um, if you don't have any pre-existing conditions. And one statistic that I heard recently, but it was already a few days ago and maybe completely out of date because information is changing at such a rapid pace at the moment, was that the youngest person in the UK to die from the from coronavirus who had no pre-existing conditions was 63. Um, how much truth is there in that? So for example, I'm 50, I have no pre-existing conditions that I know of. In fact, I'm pretty certain I don't because for completely different reasons, I had to have a very thorough uh, medical um, quite recently. How likely if I were to catch the virus, um, should would it, I mean, would would the chance be 
extremely small that I would have a severe manifestation go to the ICU? Or or would it be non-negligible? What is your, your feeling? Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think your risk is very low. Um, the only thing that I would say here, though, is um, there are people we know that have pre-existing conditions, and then there are people where, you know, they might have a pre-existing condition of some sort, but it's not an issue in their life, a chronic issue, and so it's, they've never been diagnosed for it. So, you know, the classic case of the 21-year-old, um, I think he was the Spanish mm-hmm. soccer coach who died. Well, it turned out that he was in the early stages of leukemia, and he didn't know, and he hadn't been diagnosed. So that was his pre-existing condition, but he was a soccer coach, and he was 21. So um, some of the people who die that seem totally healthy or go close to death, I think they probably have some exacerbating condition that is not normally chronic, and maybe they've not even been diagnosed for. So you know, some of this is the terminology you use. Um, we all actually have pre-existing conditions that make us susceptible to death at some point in the future, right? Um, so again, it's a spectrum. I think they're focusing mainly on hypertension um, and a couple of other, like you know, like chronic respiratory illnesses, heart disease. A lot of this is just like correlated with other things. They're seeing people who are obese are more likely. Um, to have severe problems, but obese people have all sorts of pre-existing conditions. I, you know, in the United States, well over fifty percent, I think, have a pre-existing condition. Uh, one of the one of the pre-existing conditions. So, um, you know, I, I think technically, yes, the idea that if you don't have pre-existing condition, you're young and healthy, it, it is low risk. The main issue that I have is like I don't think everyone knows whether they have a pre-existing condition or not. You said you had a thorough physical, so. I think you can say that. A lot of Americans don't like to go to the doctor and get physicals. Mm-hmm. It's very unusual here in the UK too, was because I was in Argentina. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a very large proportion of Americans uh, are obese and Brits too. So that's a lot of people who are more vulnerable um, in that case. Yep, yep. And so, I mean, we're not... I I don't think this is like the total explanation, but um, when I saw the statistic about obesity and the Chinese (laughs) have tried to do some studies um, with their sample sizes because they're subsamples of the total number to like figure out if obesity is a problem, but they couldn't get any results because they don't have enough obese people in their samples. Mm, mm, Right. Right. So they saw some patterns, but they couldn't get a statistically significant sample because their sample size of obese people was too small. Well, you know, now we're having more results come in, and it looks like obesity is a huge comorbidity, totally unsurprising. Now, um, 3% of people in Japan are obese. Okay? Mm. Like 35, 40% of Americans are obese. Mm, mm. And so uh, the Japanese, they're having kind of a resurgence and outbreak, but people have been really confused why it takes so long for their numbers to increase, and they haven't been doing a lockdown recently. And so um, I'm not saying that this is the only explanation, but they probably have a lot fewer comorbidities associated with the coronavirus. Um, I mean, the obesity is a signal for a lot of things. Right. I know that you've also expressed some surprise about the numbers in India, which seem to be not increasing at the kinds of 
rates that we would expect. I've been very concerned about how the virus would affect India. Um, 5% of Indians live below the poverty line. For them, social distancing is impossible. Um, These are people who are homeless, living on the street, or living in really, really crowded conditions in slums. And also people who are uh, not in abject poverty, but nevertheless are living in chawls and uh, and more crowded societies, as the Indians call them, these kind of little housing estates. I can't imagine how social distancing is even feasible under those kinds of living conditions. And even for more middle-class Indians, India is just immensely more crowded. I mean, you have to go out in order to buy food. And I can't see how you can possibly be outside, even in genteel South Bombay, where I lived, without, without being less than six feet away, without being less than six feet away from a lot of other people, not just one or two. I, ca- I can't see how social distancing is, is possible there. And the health system is in much, much worse shape there to begin with. So I, but it seems like the numbers are still low. Um, Do you think, so a couple of theories that I've heard about this, and I'm not qualified to judge at all. One is that there might be a protective effect from the BCG vaccine, which I kind of hope since I had the BCG vaccine when I was growing up in Pakistan. Um, And another is that, um, seasonality and climate might be a factor, and the virus might spread less readily or be less virulent in warmer conditions. I, you know, I do. I mean, especially the climate. I've read a lot of papers that were preprints on this topic. Um, I'm quite uncertain. Um, I do think climate does have an effect. If I had to bet, I would say it probably does have an effect um, that hot, humid climates or some people are saying hot, dry is better. But in any case, very hot climates probably reduce the spread. And so, um, you know, there's all sorts of theories why. But, um, you know, I I think that probably has had some of an effect. Um, I don't think it reduces it down to nothing. And I think it probably still can spread if there's no social distancing. Um, you know, I know that Indians are loud talkers, um, and that might be a problem. You know, so um, I made a lot of jokes with my Indian friends about this, but um, probably in bad taste. But you know what? You got to take humor where you can get it. Yeah. Um, so um, the BGC, uh, that, um, I, I have that too, by the way, because I, I was born in Bangladesh. But um, I don't know. The Indian scientists, seem to believe it because I've seen multiple papers that they've published with the correlations, but that virus's effect is, or like the vaccine was supposed to like kind of fade after a year. Now that doesn't mean it fades for everything. And I think Britain also had the vac that vaccine and they're not doing well. Mm. So um, I think there's probably not going to be a silver bullet um, that explains all of this, but there could be a bunch of different factors like, you know, I was joking that it's because Indians are vegetarian or like, you know, they were, they're Hindu. I mean, I don't know. Mm. Like a lot of the issues, nobody knows what's going on because it's so early and so new. I don't like the certainty 
that I sometimes hear. And so what I mentioned online recently is I read multiple preprints, multiple reports by experts where the experts express a lot of uncertainty and then it's written up in the New York Times or something. Um, And if you read the text, it seems actually much more certain than in the preprint, but you know, they still kind of have a little caution. And then if you read the headline, there's no uncertainty. And so each step, it becomes more and more certain. And um, I think with India, we don't know what's going on. Um, It could be something sociological. Um, It could be that they get infected by some endemic disease that's somehow similar in the way it triggers coronavirus. Or it's that, you know, it triggers antibodies or something that's defensive against coronavirus. Like that could be a hypothesis that I think is plausible. Um, Southeast Asia is having a little bit of an increase, although not that much. So um, I know Indians give a lot of credit to the lockdown, but um, yeah, it's crowded. I saw an article because my family's from Bangladesh. I was Googling and, you know, there were the article's headline was just funny because it was like, Bangladeshis trying to um, understand how they can social distance <laughs> because it's not physically possible in Dhaka to social distance. It's like yeah. five times denser than New York City. You know, it's, it's just not, a, yeah. a bunch of it's, people looking really confused because they're like, where should we go? <laughs> yeah. Say, well, the same in, in Bombay. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I did see some uh, photos um, it, it was just, you know, a, a single kind of one-off um, group of people, and they were social distancing by they climbed a tree, um, and they were in different branches. And of course, that's also not really feasible in Bombay. But I thought that was hilarious, um, yeah. and it really yeah. it it shows it illustrates the problem. You know, there's no room on the ground, so they were yeah. in in Boy. different tree branches. Well, so the de- the deaths. The last time checking, like which is as of six hours ago, is 169 deaths. Um, we don't know how we're, they're attributing it, but I actually asked a friend of mine who's a businessman in, in Bombay. I mean, I think you know him, Kushal Mera, uh, the Charvaka. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, uh, I ask him like every other day, what's going on in the hospitals? What's going on in the hospitals? Because the thing with this disease is if you don't test, you don't get COVID positive tests. Right. It's like it doesn't exist, but people show up in the hospital. That's how you know, you know, and it's still under control so far. Um, there have been a fair number of people who've tested positive, but 169 people have died. But, you know, this is a nation of 1.3 billion. So per capita, it's pretty good. Um, I looked at some regional disaggregations and um, M- Mumbai looks bad. Bombay looks bad, but um, it's like going up exponential. But uh, Kerala is actually bending the curve um, and Kerala was the first place that got it. So um, that's interesting to me. Um, mm. I'm pretty optimistic, actually, about India, just because, well, what, what can you be? Um, and uh, it should have been really bad already. Um, people have been waiting for two weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. Every day that goes by that it doesn't explode is, is a good day, and it tells you that something's going on. I don't know. Maybe it's because of all the turmeric. I don't know, <laughs> you know? Nobody really knows, but it's... It's mysterious. And, you know, if you read the Western press, and Indians have noticed this because they're very sensitive and they really care what white people think about them, is, you know, it's like disaster in India soon. Mm, mm. 
and they were writing that like every single day like they were just waiting for like you know these like street shitters to just like go crazy with the plague <laughs> i mean it was like you know indians were pretty mad because they're like we know what you're doing there <laughs> like you're showing pictures of like really crowded poor people in a slum and the headline is like you know impending doom right. india you know so uh, there's been like some some irritation which i think is justified because i'm just like i mean come on guys like let's just wait for the disaster before we write about it <laughs> um yeah talking of, of of that what do you what do you think what is your prognosis for the rest of this year how do you think it's going to develop so one thing that is happening here in the uk and that has everybody very anxious is that we're kind of waiting here not sure how long lockdown will continue and of course i can understand that it's impossible it may be impossible to predict at this stage um And there have been threats that lockdown will become stricter. We won't be able to leave our houses at all. At the moment, you're permitted to go out for daily exercise uh, or to shop. And in fact, we still have to go shopping because uh, there is a severe shortage of deliveries and delivery slots. The, the, de the whole kind of system of delivery, of grocery deliveries, is extremely uh, overburdened at the moment. And uh, the major supermarkets are all asking people not to book delivery slots unless they are, uh, unless they are elderly in high-risk group or key workers. Um, so in fact, the advice now is not, is not to take up a delivery slot if you don't need it. But the, the, the threats have been that um, We will have our shopping baskets inspected to see that when you're shopping for groceries, you're buying essential items only, um, that um, all of the parks and green spaces and outdoor spaces in London will be shut, um, that we won't be, some police have been asking people to stay out of their own gardens even. And we're kind of sitting here waiting, wondering how long that whether those kinds of restrict whether restrictions will get worse because the situation will worsen and how long lockdown will last and people are already talking about a relaxation of lockdown and then a second lockdown in autumn what are your kind of i don't know if you want to do any best guesses but if you do this is your opportunity um and i won't i won't laugh at you if you turn out to be wrong Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think most people are going to be wrong just because the possibilities, the range of possibilities are, are wide. Um, it depends on where you are. Um, I think Austria is going to start winding down their lockdown next week, like in a week. Uh, but, it, you know, obviously New York City can't do that. I mean, we're going to be locked down in the States until May 1st, pretty much. Um, and so I think it depends on where you are, but um, I don't think it's sustainable beyond june 1st okay it's just i i just don't think there's too many people who are going to be destitute um money's going to run out i mean there's a lot of people in the united states that are already not paying rent um and so um i think that's as late as it can go yes here here too i mean many people have been furloughed as they're calling it here so they are i don't know if you're also using that word yeah we have that word too right so they're off work but on full pay but many other people have just lost their earnings. I would say about half of my friends now have zero earnings. 
Yeah, yeah. And are just living off their savings or living with their parents or just feeling more and more desperate um, yeah. and waiting and hoping for government handout. Uh, and that's already now in April. Yeah. So, I mean, the government, um, so this is a government enforced tax, right? It's, it's a tax on your livelihood. It's a tax on the economy. It's enforced for a good reason, but not everyone can pay that same tax. Um, this is helping the wealthy by isolating the disease because the wealthy are not immune from the disease. They're immune from other things. They're immune from all sorts of, you know, prosecution by the law. You know, they can use their connections to get into schools that they wouldn't otherwise get into. But when it comes to this, they're not immune. And even if you have the best health care in the world, it doesn't matter because, you know, we're naive to this virus. So they have a really strong incentive to keep people in lockdown as long as possible. And so um, they should be redistributing, like, you know, asking for temporary higher taxes. I don't know. But, um, like, I'm not in a situation right now where I am desperate. Um, I have money to support my family. I still have work. Um but, you know, what if I was, if I was, and if my kids were hungry, I don't really care about the rule of law. Mm-hmm. I will take what I need. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be people like that out there. And I can't even ethically say that what they're doing is wrong. They have to do what they have to do to support their family. So if you're going to grind people down to this animal base, they're going to behave like that. So you need to give them money, um, universal basic income, I don't know, something. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be done fast. I think European governments are more well-suited to that because they already do income transfers constantly. We are not right here. But um, So anyway, I think you can't do it beyond June 1st just because the economics. It doesn't matter about the epidemiology, mm-hmm. okay? Like at some point, like you can't crush um, the poor – and ultimately, we need to eat. The har- harvest, you know, need to be, you know, done. Like, there are field workers out there. There's there's a lot of things with the ch- supply chain that are already being affected in terms of food. Um, you know, here in the United States, they're throwing away milk. They're throwing away eggs because they can't get it anywhere. Restaurants are shut down. And, you know, all sorts of things are happening mm, like that. Mm. So I think, I think some places will be open by May 1st, some places by June 1st. Um, there's a few places, you know, April 15th, I think there will be some localities that will be shut down or restricted beyond June 1st, but those will be in the minority. Um, and so I think that it will be kind of calm in the summer, but I do think that there's a high probability that we will have a second wave in the fall, but that is much more uncertain and it's conditional on the drugs we have, the vaccinations we have and you know, they're saying 18 months, but really it's 18 months because you need to make sure it's safe. But if the choice is totally safe, maybe it works, you know, and the maybe it works allows you to avoid a second lockdown or avoid a lot of old people dying. Maybe that's what you have to go with, you know? Um, I think we are not in a situation where we have to make those choices yet. I mean, 
I understand, you know, like, like I'll just like admit it. My brother-in-law's business has been totally destroyed. I mean, it's not like it hasn't affected me. Like I've seen what it's done and it just, it's crushed people and the government isn't really helping everyone. I mean, it's helping some people, but you know, it's spotty and it's imposed this from above, which it did it for a reason. And I agreed with it, but, um, you know, everyone knows someone who's been hit and we have limits, uh, about how much of this we can absorb. And the people that are benefiting the most are the people that actually have the most. And let's be entirely frank. Um, they were the ones who were spreading it. Um, mm. It was spread mm. from like the ski, you know, the sh- the chalets in Austria were major vectors spreading it all across Europe. So um, there's going to be some anger out there really soon. And I'm 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 more like economically, I'm pretty libertarian actually. I'm more I'm conservative. I'm not I'm not a socialist or anything like that. But this is not a situation where. Um, you know, we need to think about like, okay, like what's the minimal state and how little can we give? And, you know, people need to be independent. And if you want people to be independent, they're going to take their weapons and they're going to take the food for their family. That's, that's independence. Now we are rapidly regressing psychologically, I think to a more primitive level because nature is in our face its threat is in our face. And so we're going back toward, we're, we're, it's like an atavi- we're atavism. It's, it's going back to like these small tribes that were living in a capricious world. Well, I mean, that's what happened with the lack of economic efficiency and the breakdown of the supply chains and the emergence of a pandemic that can totally overwhelm our modern health system. Um, now, you know, people are relying on their family and their friends because those are not faceless institutions that just disappear. Mm. You know, like I have money in the bank right now, but what if hyperinflation happens? Mm. Is the bank, gonna, you know, give me more money to match hyperinflation? No, they're just going to say the rules are the rules and your money is worthless now. You know, with friends and family, that doesn't apply. They're not making a calculation. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I think we're, we're learning to appreciate that not everything should be a rational economic calculation. Mm. And I think we were doing that too much. I think a lot of people in my socioeconomic classes, they move away from where their family is for their job. Yeah. But their job is usually, you know, it's not like they're a woodworker making something. They usually work for a faceless company that you know, hires them because they think that they're economically useful. And so it's an economically useful reciprocal relationship. And now what this pandemic has done is totally burned away all of those utilities. And when you strip away the economic utility, you're not useful. You can just go away. It just dissolves just like that. You know, and when that stuff dissolves, when the institutions are gone, you fall back on your family, um, on your friends, if you're religious, on your church or your temple or whatever, you know. Um, and that's going to happen more and more. The longer and longer the economic um, immiseration continues. And you know, some people think that, oh, well, the people are passive. They're not going to do anything. Um, I'm kind of skeptical. I think... Um, I think that they're. I think it could be a class war if they don't uh, 
if they don't um, be careful. I, you know, I, this kind of a tangent, I do find it interesting. Um, Hannah Nora Jones, the, uh, the woke capital uh, neoliberal shill wants to make it all about race. Right. And I'm just, I'm just like, you know what that's doing? That's, that's distracting from the reality. Mm. Cause uh like that Sidney Poitier movie, like, you know, you think of yourself as a, as a black man, but I think of myself as a man. And like, she thinks of themselves as she thinks of these people as poor black people, but actually they're just poor people. Right. Like that, that's why they're dying. They're poor people. It's not because they're black. Virus doesn't care about their right race. The virus cares about its comorbidities. Virus cares about density and, you know, maybe like unsanitary living situations because they can't find a better place to live or because they're homeless. Um, doesn't care about, you know, the race. The virus is not irrational. The virus just is. Right. I've been having a lot of, uh, well, not a lot. I have been having fewer arguments on Twitter than usual because it feels less important to argue with people. So that is one (laughs) tiny good thing that has happened for me. Um, But I have noticed people trying to manipulate the framing. And this is something that you touched on in your article, which is that we are very accustomed to, especially those of us, that's an, that I, I mean us in the sense of me and people like me, uh, as opposed to you and people like you. Um, we are, our expertise is in language, and therefore we have a tendency to believe that everything can be controlled and changed by the way that we talk about it. So I feel that some people are so used to that yeah. um, that they think that the import. For example, we saw that in all of the debate over whether to what to call it, whether to call it the Chinese virus or not. And yeah, that was that was Chinese propaganda. That was Chinese propaganda. Mm. That was like that was Chinese state propaganda manipulating the like the moronic Western press. Right. Like, like every everyone who is tracking it in January knew exactly what they were doing mm. because they were initially calling it the Wuhan pneumonia, right. um, which is what they still call it in Taiwan and everywhere else. And even in like China, they call it the Wuhan pneumonia. And then they realized, Oh, well, it's a geographic name. And these idiots in the press, like I'm actually like livid thinking about how stupid they are. Um, they took the propaganda and because they're the Chinese are smart and they realize the press is moronic and they basically just reverse engineered some woke talking points and the press started amplifying it because they're like scorpions with a stinger. They just start stinging mindlessly. Mm. You know, they saw some like stupid, like racial things. And so they just started like stinging mindlessly, like dumb animals. Um, And anyone who tracked it since January and had seen what the Chinese are doing with the world health organization, how they control Tedros knew exactly what was happening. I almost admired them for their evil, you know, evil execution of a, I mean, I could just like imagine the propaganda masters in Beijing just laughing at Chris Hayes, self-righteously retweeting that you can't call it the Wuhan pneumonia or the Wuhan, you know, whatever. Like, I I understand that Trump is being a little, is being dumb by calling it the Chinese virus because it's kind of like dumb meets dumb. Like, you know, like my whole city journal piece wasn't to point at any faction. It was to talk about how the whole system is dominated by people who manipulate social status games and words. And when a virus comes at you, those people are useless. Like they they should be 
like they could be compost. Like that's the only use that they have in like the the society afterwards. You know, uh, it, it's like ridiculous. Like Trump, you know, he's a master of social manipulation, of positioning. Like he can control. He's a wizard of controlling the minds of tens of millions of Americans, and I'm talking about the people that hate him. Mm, mm. He, I cannot tell you like how much mental energy and time. I have seen my liberal friends ex- expend screaming about him, mm. and he's doing it purposely. He's doing it purposely. He's manipulating you, right? So he's a genius about that sort of stuff. But when it comes to the virus, he has no idea. You know what is he going to say? Corona, it's beautiful. You're going to love it. Like his his shtick doesn't work with this. He's a master of men. He's not like a master of nature, right? So um, he's not an engineer. He's not like someone like Herbert Hoover, past president, who was an engineer, who did a lot of humanitarian things. Like he doesn't understand how to deal with the natural world. Trump was born into wealth and privilege, and he's a con man. He's a grifter. Um, He manipulates social situations and puffs himself up. Like he needs this world to operate in. Similarly, these um, media creatures who, you know, work with semantics and words and, you know, positional games. Um, they, you know, they behave a little bit like Communist Party apparatchiks. Um, you know, they're a certain type of person. They kind of remind me of some Salafis that I've known that know how, like, you know, every single action is there to glorify God or like his way. Well, for these woke people, mm-hmm. every single action is about social justice and everything is political. Right, so they politicize every single action. They politicize the act of like bringing up a coffee cup to your mouth and drinking the coffee. <laughs> because why is the coffee dark and why is the cup white? Mm. What is that symbolizing? <laughs> the white cup is restraining the coffee. I just like made that up in five seconds because it's easy because it's stupid. You know, like it's it's like it's 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 a very childish, infantile with like no need for rationality. You can just free associate some characteristics and make an analogy. And this is what they do. Um, This is what they've done for years. This is what dominates our media, dominates Twitter. Mm. And it doesn't care what we call it. It makes, I mean, I recently saw on uh, two things on, uh, on, on Twitter that have been going on that seem just so tangential. One is that people are retweeting an article about how um, the first cases in the US can be traced to people traveling from Europe and not from China. And that is somehow a great relief to people because it, it sort of shows that it's not, it, we can't orientalize the virus. The virus comes from kind of white Westerners and it's part of sort of patriarchy or something. But at, at, at this point, first of all, at this stage, does it even matter whether yeah. they came from Europe or from China? It's it's there now. It's in the States now. That is that is the situation we have to deal with. It's a ridiculous argument from ridiculous people preoccupied with ridiculous things. You know, so in my piece, I made an analogy to Chinese bureaucrats during the late imperial period where there were like instances where they would argue about points of precedence and protocol that were relevant in 500 AD. Mm but it was 1896. Right. You know, and Europeans were carving up imperial China, but they were still preoccupied with their like little factionalism. And that that's 
how I perceive a lot of this to be like this rectification of names, aligning names to status and, and all these other things. And, you know, these language games, which is just incessant from the left in particular. I mean, the right does it sometimes, but really it's incessant from the left. Like everything is always changing with a different name as if a name is a magical thing where it's like, you know, these are like, I don't know if you've ever read Wizard of Earthsea, but you know, there's a magic system there where, where it's like, it's a naming, it's, it's about names, right? Like names are really powerful. This is how these people think. They actually think that there's a magic system and the names can transform things. So if you just don't call it, the Wuhan pneumonia or whatever, then people won't realize it's from China because people are mm. idiots. Yeah, I'm, you know? I'm also hearing a lot of people saying it's, it, it's a disease that primarily affects black people and therefore it's a manifestation of kind of racism and white supremacy. That just, it makes no sense to me. And I feel as though, I mean, on the right, I'm also noticing some really toxic people continually to, continuing to speak in a really toxic way about people of color in the UK or immigrants in the UK being parasites in our society at the very moment when um, people of color are overrepresented. I don't usually use that phrase, actually. Let's say black and brown Brits are overrepresented among uh, key workers and heavily overrepresented in the NHS. Um, the per capita contribution of particularly Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi origin people among NHS doctors and nurses is huge. So it's time we kind of let go of all of this idiocy because those people are literally risking their lives for us. Um, it's, it's the worst possible time to be a racist, but it's also, uh, also the disease has nothing to do with our racism or white supremacy or nor is it a disease of of primarily of black people etc i just i find all of those mm -hmm. considerations very 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 distracting um we need to isolate what the factors are and we we know what some of those mm -hmm. factors are and those might um African Americans might be overrepresented because they may be more likely to live in more densely populated areas, they may be more likely to be poor, and they may be more likely to be obese or have bl high blood pressure and other comorbidities. But yep. it's we yep. have to not stop at the at the black thing. We have to um go beyond that to what the actual re the real reasons are. And people are just so they're caught in their in their kind of usual framing, and they're like, "How can I stick my normal framing onto this problem?" I saw a Twitter thread from a doctor I know, um, and anyway, he basically said, "You know, black people are dying more because of systemic racism." Mm -hmm. Just like, okay, it's a virus, and we're all naive to it, so. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess systemic racism makes them fat. I don't know. I mean, look, I know I don't I'm not going to use the word systemic racism because I'm not going to let the master control my language. Right. Like racism is racism. I don't know what systemic has anything to do with about. But, um, you know, so there are some historical reasons there. But I think Latinos are not doing that badly. Um, I think people are racist against Latinos, too. And Asians are not doing that badly in the United States. In England, it's a little different. Um, you know, the South Asians there especially the East London, Bangladeshis are quite poor. 
Mm. Um, there's huge issues with comorbidity because they can't like keep away from the mishti. They just keep eating the mishti. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But I mean, that's on them. Um, you know, nobody gives you type two diabetes with magic. I'm just saying. So, um, you know, on issues with hypertension, it's like stay away from the salt, like too much lobo and, you know, this sort of stuff. Um, anyway, it's just, uh, I think, um, age is a big variable. Obviously, we know that sex is kind of a variable. I mean, it seems like it does affect men more than women, but it's like 57% versus 43%. I mean, you're not safe if you're a woman, you know? Um, in terms of all the race and everything like that, there are probably some differences. Like some of them could be due to some inherent genetic thing. Who knows? Nobody knows, okay? Um, but ultimately, like, they're not really relevant to the decisions that we're making. Like, I don't see any difference in the policies if it's disproportionately affecting BAME or, or like black Americans. Um, it's just, that's how it is. Ultimately the goal is to not have it kill anybody mm. to make a vaccine. Right. So that, I mean, that's what it, I think it is bringing people together as humans, but some people can't let go of their preoccupations, whether it's anti-immigrant or you know, anti-racist or, you know, whatever self-righteous thing they're into, um, they're still going to talk about it even now. Mm. And I, I, I did see a lot less woke stuff. There's a lot fewer cops out there. There's a lot of cops on Twitter. Mm. Um, just kind of like really like, you know, the type of people that would be narking on their parents during the Stalinist era. You know, there's a lot of sociopaths that are really big on Twitter because Twitter rewards that. I, they kind of kept a low profile because I think they knew that like, okay, you know what? People don't, people don't care. I mean, you know, I have like um, a friend of mine, he's a pretty left-wing scientist and normally he doesn't retweet me because he doesn't want people to like, you know, accuse him of being a fascist. But he started retweeting me like a couple weeks ago. I was like, what's up with that? And he was like, I don't really care. Like I could die. Who cares? I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it concentrates the mind. So I think <laughs> yeah, I think people are just like, fuck it. You know, there's a lot of people I know who are like, fuck it. Like, they don't really care because like, you know, you're probably not going to die, but like some people do die, you know, some people do die. I mean, I know, I don't know anybody close who's died, but I, you know, my brother-in-law's great aunt died or yeah, my brother-in-law's great aunt died, you know, of COVID-19, you know, so I already know someone who died. Um, I know several other people in my extended circle who've died, um, you know, a good friend in California's old boss died. So I, I know many people who are positive now, but, um, you know, people are dying now. And, you know, I'm still stressed about my career and, like, you know, jobs and everything like that. I'm still stressed about that stuff. But I have to say the last month, I haven't been nearly as stressed about that. Uh, I called and updated my life insurance policy. I made sure to play with my kids every day. Mm -hmm. um, I started realizing what the yes. priorities were. Um, yes, I, I have a couple of uh, scientific questions to, to ask you, but um, first, I, I'm, I just wanted to mention that my response when I felt that, the, that, that things were getting serious was um, to just speed up my moving back to London, it was just to come straight back here and uh, to live with my old friends. Um, and since I don't want to go back to Pakistan for many and perhaps obvious reasons, it's like a return to my base. Um, 
and um, return to kind of, I'm living with old college friends in a shared house. And it was immediately this wish to just be home, just quickly get home and be home um, when this is happening. Mm -hmm. Be closer to family, be closer to old friends. Yeah. Feel like you're home. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did that. Um, two questions. Um, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say two in case I forget the second one as I'm, as I'm asking the first one. Um, but the first one is about the vaccine. So I was recently reading an article. I'm not, I'm, I'm not really qualified to tell how, how accurate it was, um, about the structure of the virus. And the article claimed basically um, that, I'll put the article itself in the show notes, but it claimed that the virus has a single DNA strand structure. And that makes it, means that it can only mutate through transcription errors, whereas some of the other, some other viruses, including uh, some other coronaviruses, have, are multi-stranded, and therefore they can also mutate by swapping strands among themselves. And that means that the mutation rate for, for um, the COVID-19 virus is, um, is slower than for those multi-stranded uh, viruses, and therefore we do stand a good chance of creating a vaccine for it. Um, in a way that we haven't been able to, for example, for the common cold. Is that, is, is my understanding of that accurate? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard the same thing. I mean, basically, I've heard it has a low mutation rate, um, a surprisingly low mutation rate. Like people are quite happy and they were worried that it wasn't going to be as low as it was. So um, for coronavirus, um, so yes, I, I have heard that that, that is true. Um, I think the flip side of the, of the vaccination issue is there's arguments about how long immunity lasts and, um, you know, like how quickly the antibodies leave. And, you know, uh, there's some preprints out there. It's very uncertain, really controversial right mm -hmm. now. Um, and nobody is really sure about that either. So um, I think there's a lot of unknown variables with the virus. Ultimately, it's one of these things. You just have to do the tests. And do you think the virus will evolve to become less virulent? Is that kind of end game for the virus that it will become endemic in human populations, but it will be less deadly? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it might not be endemic depending on how much we want to focus on it. Like say smallpox is not endemic, right? We got rid of it. Um, but mm -hmm. um, probably it will become less virulent and in the long run, we'll all be dead, right? So it's one of those things where it's like, it'll become less virulent, but that could be like 10 years in the future, you know? Um, I was hoping mm -hmm. that it would be quick, but talking with some friends of mine and who know this stuff, and they just said, um, don't bet on it happening very quickly, like at least in human timescales and definitely in virus timescales. So yeah, probably will. Um, I think it probably will, and it will probably get an endemic, but um, it's going to take like a generation. So um, we can't just let the virus, you know, get through the whole you know, population. So we're going to have a vaccine before that, hopefully. So that's not an issue. The other thing I wanted to ask is, um, I'm hearing a lot of people saying that this is a dress rehearsal for a more severe pandemic that is coming. Um, is, 
Is there any reason to believe that a more severe pandemic is coming soon? And do you think that it's likely to also be a zoonotic uh, virus, one that jumps species from animal to human? I think the worst ones, the worst plagues have been, I think. So probably, um, and in terms of whether there's going to be a bigger one, obviously it's always unpredictable. Um, This one is not that bad, I guess, technically. So maybe there could be a worse one, but um, this is a thing where it's like it's kind of random, and so you don't know if it's going to happen in ten years or two hundred fifty years. Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, I do think that this is going to prepare us for the next one. I think that you know, my past libertarian self would be outraged, but I think there's going to be a lot more invasion of privacy and testing and tracing. Um, with infections. I think there's going to be cultural changes like no handshakes, more social distance, and, um, you know, a lot more people are going to wash their hands a lot too, you know. Um, I think people are just going to, like, change their behavior. Mm. I'm, I'm, I think that's going to mitigate mm. some. I'm, I'm a bit concerned about that since one of my greatest joys in life is dancing Argentine tango. And I think that that... Um, with the ex- with the exception of with the possible exception of a professional uh, porn actor, I think almost nobody comes into such close contact with so many people as a as an Argentine tango dancer. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, That's we're s- standing there embracing people very close and snug. Your mouth is like centimeters from the other person's mouth, and you hold them like that while you're dancing for 12 minutes at a time and you swap partners every quarter of an hour. <laughs> it's, um, it's the virus's dream situation. And of course, tango is completely yeah. shut down now all over the world. And, and nobody is dancing anymore, except for maybe a few people individually in their couples. And so I, I, I am concerned about that. And I do like a warm a kind of warm atmosphere where people hug each other a lot. Um, I am afraid that we're we're going to move away from that, that fear is going to change many things about our interactions. Yeah, I think for the next five years or so, I think once we have a vaccine, some people are going to be more relaxed. But, um, you know, there was this thing that was big in San Francisco 10 years ago when I lived in the Bay Area. Um, they're called cuddle parties. Oh yes, yes. And these are often strangers, mm. you know, cuddle cuddle piles. I mean, I still mm. remember like five years ago, there was like I was walking down the street and I ran into a friend and he was dressed like a bunny, and I'm like, "What do you do?" And like, "Where are you going?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm going to a cuddle pile." <laughs> yeah, dressed as a rabbit. You know, I, he's not going to be going to cuddle piles, like you know, right now. So I think that sort of stuff is changing, right? Mm. Mm. Is there anything that we haven't covered? Are there is there anything that you feel anything that you notice the public particularly misunderstanding that you feel that as a scientist you might be able to correct them on? Yeah, I mean I think the main thing is just always remember like the high level of uncertainty, plasticity, um the dynamism of human reaction. So um in physics, rocks don't react. So you can just model the trajectory of an asteroid. But when you're modeling epidemiology, you're assuming certain human behaviors. And when you give them the model, humans may change their behavior. And so this is why the models are changing a lot. 
Um, that's one thing that I would definitely say. Um, and you know, uh, it's good to be skeptical, but, um, you need to be skeptical of your skepticism too sometimes because, uh, this is a life and death situation. Normally I'm actually pretty okay with people believing stupid things, but, um, it's dangerous now. And so I don't know, we could be wrong, but you know, we have everyone's best intentions in mind. Um, and just like people need to talk to a lot of people and get information from a lot of people. Don't trust any one authority because ultimately nobody really knows anything about this. So there are people that you can talk to who are smallpox experts or, you know, influenza experts, and they can tell you all these things. There's nobody who's a a SARS coronavirus 2 expert. There's no human being alive because we've only known about it for two and a half, three months, Mm. you know? Um, we don't we don't know its behavior, so we don't know a lot of things about it. Um, it's just like I wish people would be more frank and candid and honest about that. But just because we don't know a lot of things about it doesn't mean we can't give people advice about how you should react to something that could kill, I don't know, like 15, 20% of people over the age of 80 if it was mm, left unchecked. Mm. I feel that we we – one thing that this has revealed is that we don't even know that much about ourselves and our own behavior because first first the British government, for example, was saying they had to pursue herd immunity because psychologists had told them that people wouldn't self-social distance and go into isolation, and we all have. And now I'm hearing constant predictions, like, for example, we we need to stop older people from taking a rest, sitting down on a bench during their um, exercise in the park. Because if one person sits down on a bench, everybody will suddenly flock to benches and there will be a huge crowd and it will spread the virus. And I'm skeptical of both those things, of um, the uh, the idea that we can know exactly how people are going to respond and behave in that minute way. And I think that that has... I feel that the psychologists have really let us down in this crisis or psychology as a discipline has revealed its weaknesses, predictive weaknesses. The issue with psychology is psychologists know so much about people who are 21-year-old college students in a laboratory environment. (laughs) This is the -hmm. whole world reacting to a plague. Um, so I, I think yes. this is a situation where they don't have actually any data. I mean, I think that's the key thing that, that I want to finish up this podcast with is just re-emphasizing. People always want to ask me things about coronavirus, and I'll tell them if I know, but a lot of time I just say, I don't really know. I mean, I've looked at data, mm-hmm. but I haven't gotten enough to make a judgment, and there's not enough data. I don't really know. I've looked really closely and I know a lot of the people who are being asked and do comment, they probably don't know because I don't, unless there's like secret information somewhere about coronavirus, they don't know some of the things that they're saying. So I think uncertainty, just being humble about it um, is important. But I also think in terms of action, you can't just dither like you have to make a choice. You have to take a stand and maybe we're wrong and we've like destroyed the world economy, but 
we don't think we are. We think we're saving the lives of tens of millions of human beings. And so we're just going to try all we can as, you know, scientists or whatever you want to say, like concerned people to have these policies that are painful, but that are less painful than millions and millions of especially old people dying. You know, I mean, it just seems like if you just let them die, what's the point of being a human in a society? People are expendable units, right? Like if that's what it is, then what's the whole point of this? You know, um, it's, it's, uh, it is something we're doing, but for older people, but, um, that's what humans do. I mean, we don't like send people into the shredder to be compost when they're 75 or something. It's not, Logan, it's not Logan's, Logan's run. Right. I, I feel like some people are talking about it, but it is Logan's run. I'm just like, wait, this is super strange to hear this kind of talk. Like, <laughs> you know, their lives not worth living now all of a sudden. Mm, mm. On that cheery note. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I completely agree with you. Um, thank you so much, Razib, for joining me at such short notice. And I apologize to listeners if my questions weren't as well honed as they could have been, but this was a very spontaneous podcast. But it's been fantastic to have you on again. Yeah, my pleasure. And I will put all of the everything we've referred to in passing, I will put into the put references into the show notes. Um, I encourage everybody to follow um, Razib on Twitter, and I'll put his Twitter handle in the show notes too, and to also follow your podcast, The Insight. And for further information on this, if like me, you cannot get enough information about the pandemic, go and listen to Razib's uh, previous episodes, because I think you have been one of the most consistently reliable and, and uh best voices in this that I've that I've encountered. So thank you so much for that. All right. I will see you around online. And stay well, everyone, and have a lovely week. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario A. R E O A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.